You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This summer, there was this moment that is kind of emblematic to me of 2020 and everything that is kind of going on right now. As California was burning, as we all saw the orange skies, the smoke, the huge areas that were going up in flames, heard the stories of people fleeing these places and these areas. There's this one shot of California governor, Gavin Newsom, out in a burned out forest, the charred remains of trees and the kindling on the ground and what have you, and this smoke in the background. And he's giving a speech and he's a politician. So I, I get, you know, there's politician aspects of this, but he's giving a speech and the central thrust of his talk was that the federal government needed to do something about climate change. He was standing there amid, you know, all these trees that had been burned down and all these lives that had been, you know, wrecked and transformed and and damaged. And he's talking about President Trump and how President Trump, you know, got out of the Paris Accords and uh, is not taking climate change seriously. And until we have national leadership that takes climate change seriously, this kind of stuff is going to continue to happen over and over. And Californians are going to experience the the brunt of this. It was a speech about the need for this big initiative to combat global climate change. Now, I'm not going to argue with, you know, for or against the big initiatives. And and I certainly am not a skeptic on the climate changing and uh, man's role in that. But I find it a little dissonant. I found it a little hard to listen to. The idea that the main problem at this juncture, the main thing that would need to happen is out of the control of the governor of California. You look at the wildfires burning, you look at all the things that are happening. To me, if I were to diagnose the problem, if I were going to run through, you know, the 20 things that led to this, the fact that the climate is changing would be 20 on that list, or maybe even further down that list, things like the forest management practices, things like uh, we can't build in cities, so people are building out in the middle of nowhere. The fact that California continues to this day to invest in expanding highway capacities and, and making it easier for people to live in these areas. I go through this long litany of, of things, and it takes me a long time before I get out of something that is really in the realm of what the governor of California, or certainly the state of California, would have influence over. I got the same impression here in my home state uh, after George Floyd was killed. And the Minneapolis City Council stood up and you know said, like, we, we are going to uh, defund the police. And they expressed outrage at all the things that have been done. They called for the state to take action. They called for the federal government to take action. Uh, they wanted all these reforms to happen. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I look at the city of Minneapolis and I'm like, these, these are your cops. Like, this is your police department. If, if you can't control this, if you can't do this, 
what's going on? Why is this someone else's problem to solve? How is this not operating under your purview, essentially the way you have set it up to act? Many of us seem to be waiting for November 4th, the day after the election, as if November 4th you know, is circled big on the calendars, like this is the day we can get on with our lives. This is the day when we can actually start to do something. Many of us seem to be paralyzed almost. Uh, the idea that you know, until we get to November 4th, there's very little that we can do to actually make things better. There's two aspects of this that I want to discuss. The first is you know, the dysfunction of the current moment. We live in a massively dysfunctional time, right? I'm not saying anything original there. We've all seen this. We've all struggled with this. I just, a good friend of mine talking to today said, uh, you know, he has turned off all social media. He's turned off all news. He's just zoned out and, and will stay zoned out indefinitely because all of it is not adding to his life. The dysfunction is is not helping. And I agree. I'm sympathetic to that. I do have a my own social media Sabbath that I do, just a, a day of detox every week where I, I stay off of it and I stay away. I remember four years ago when then-candidate Donald Trump was uh, planning to run for president or was in the initial stages of running for president. And he would call these press conferences over the most absurd things. You would think that like nobody would show up, like this would just be an absurdity that would be ignored. But no, you would break into CNN, break into whatever, and, and cover this stuff live. This is reality TV for the, the modern age. Um, we have now the Twitter president. I think back to the revolutions that we had when we you know, went to television and how the Kennedy campaign understood how to use television the way that the Nixon campaign didn't. When we began using radio and, and FDR grasps the idea of radio, all of these were, in a sense, innovations that allowed us to, at least for a short period of time until the establishment kind of caught up, but allowed politicians to speak past the cultural gatekeepers and speak directly to people. These were all massively disruptive, massively disruptive. And you, you can go back and read laments from people at the time about radio, you know, destroying discourse in this country and television, you know, the early days of television, just ruining the way we did politics and the way we did public policy. Because now, you know, the, the president could be a populist, a demagogue. They could just go straight to the people. We have now entered like a new phase of that. Four years ago, when Donald Trump won the presidency, I know I was on here, a radio station locally. I made this comment, and I, I know I've made it a few times since. I might have made it on this podcast as well. I made the argument that if you really hate Donald Trump as president, the way you defend the first principles of this country, the way you defend our institutions, the way you uphold our traditions, the way you keep the sacred honor of the way we do things, how, however you want to define that, is that you treat him like the president. Let me get the current president out of this conversation just because I, I know this is a polarizing moment. But if we go back to Bill Clinton in the 1990s, if you thought Bill Clinton devalued the presidency or brought the presidency low or you know was a disgrace to the country or what have you. The reason you did that is because you were holding the presidency 
to a very high standard. You, you are looking at the office as something of dignity, something of honor that the individual who is occupying it didn't live up to. I think we can look at George W. Bush. There were certainly people who felt the same way about him and were very vocal about it. There were people who felt this way about Barack Obama. Throughout all of these presidents, the critique was they're not acting presidential or they're not doing this the way a president would or they're undermining some you know part of America. I think the way you respond to that is that you treat the office with the respect that it's due and you allow the individual occupying it to essentially stand in contrast to that. To me, the most effective way to undermine the credibility or the validity or the, the power really of the current occupant of the White House is to treat the office of president with an immense amount of respect. I realize that now how naive that is and how that, that was never going to happen. Let me put it like this. I've been to Washington, D.C. many times, and it's, it's hard to, you know, as someone who goes there as a, as a visitor, as a guest, it is hard to visit there and not walk away humbled. It's a city designed to humble you. I mean, the, the monumental nature of its design is, you know, designed in its very fabric of the place and the, the layout, the monuments, the uh, memorials, is designed to, to humble you. It's designed to place you as an individual, you know, myself as a lone American in this broader context. If you get a tour of the Capitol, and I've been fortunate enough to get a tour of the Capitol, I actually got to go into the Speaker of the House's office and stand on the balcony you know, looking out over the mall. It's, a, it's an astounding sight. It's just it's mind-blowing. You're bombarded over and over with statues, with sayings, with monuments. One of them that sticks in my mind in particular is the burial spot for George Washington. When the Capitol was built, there was a spot that was created kind of in the uh, lower level, you know, center of the, of the Capitol building. And that was where George Washington was to be buried. George Washington is not buried there. And he's not buried there. And this is what stuck with me. He's not buried there because, you know, like many of our founding fathers who idolized and held up as a role model, the Roman Cincinnatus, the idea was you would serve your nation you would do your duty as best you could, and then you would retire. And you would go back to, you know, to quote uh, the line in the Hamilton musical, you would go live under your own vine. I mean, that's a quote from Job. But, you know, the idea is that uh, very much in the spirit of Cincinnatus, you would give up power. And that was considered a noble and righteous and honorable thing to do. And for a long, long time, really up until FDR, we had a two-term limit rule as president, not because of any constitutional requirement, not because of any law or regulation. We had it because of, in a sense, the precedent that had been set that everyone felt they needed to live up to. I think this is what you get in the best of you know who we are. Those who, like me, and I will acknowledge this, are uncomfortable with the idea of tearing down statues and monuments. I realize we are in a time where we are rethinking our past, where we are exploring it in ways uh, historical and others. I think that that's important. I'm not against that. I think that having the real history is very important to understanding who we are. 
But I also think having the ideal is also very important. I think it's important to know that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. And I think it's important to know how he treated those slaves and his disposition towards them and the fact that he didn't you know, free them when he died and the fact that he did father children with at least one of them. And these are things that are important to know and important to acknowledge and important to be witness to and understand the great and tortured history of America. But I also think that that shouldn't stand in contrast to us embracing the ideals espoused by Thomas Jefferson, ideals that the country was founded on. And to me, when I look at the presidency, I look at Congress, I look at you know, these institutions, the way we, in a sense, take power away from those who would do bad in these places is to essentially uphold the ideals of, of what they're meant to be. You know, Mr. President, in the long tradition of this office, how does this fit in? To me, those are those are powerful things. I think I'm naive in this regard. You know, we live in this social media age. I remember the uh, the line, and I think it was Michelle Obama. Uh, if I'm wrong on that, forgive me. But the line from one of the conventions, it must have been the Democrat convention. If they go low, we go high. Well, we we all go low now. We all go low. I think it's no wonder that in this current moment of dysfunction, you know, Americans are recording the, the highest levels of anxiety, of social isolation, of depression. I read an article today that suicides are skyrocketing. Now, we're in a pandemic now, but a lot of this stuff was true before the pandemic. The pandemic has, has brought out and, and made things even more strident, even, even more difficult. I've been thinking a little bit about social media and the idea that in 2016, uh, the Russians came in and impacted our election. Through the election for Trump, or the use of, of social media. It's been one of those things that, to the extent that it's true, and I don't doubt that it's true, I, I think that it's true that the Russians tried to, you know, impact the way we think about things. You know, it's true that uh, Osama bin Laden tried to do that and affect us. Here's the thing that's fascinating about it. If you look at the two, if you look at, you know, bin Laden, the, the thing that was... I'm going to say this and be generous with me because I, I, I don't mean it in any disparaging way of you know 9-11 or any of the things that happened. The genius thing about 9-11 from the standpoint of Osama bin Laden is that this didn't cost anything. In terms of like, you could do this with relatively little resources and little money on the account of you know a terrorist network. And the response that we had to it it's uncalculable. I mean, in the multiple, multiple trillions of dollars in responding to this, and, and let alone, you know, all the other things that have come about it, meddling in our elections through Facebook and through social media platforms is essentially like the same thing. Let me put it this way. The Molotov cocktail is a genius weapon. It's a genius weapon that was used in the world wars. It's been used in protests and riots around the world. It's a very you know, familiar weapon. The reason why it's a genius weapon is not only because it's relatively effective, you, know, you get hit with a Molotov cocktail, you throw a Molotov cocktail, uh, you can do a lot of damage, but the Molotov cocktail is brutally easy to make. You're talking about a bottle, some gas, and a rag. Like anybody can make a Molotov cocktail. Well, anybody can create an intellectual weapon out of social media posts. You don't need a huge budget. You don't need millions of dollars. You don't need a coordinated strategy. 
you can do this on a shoestring. And so you, you look, and this time we're in is kind of made for the intellectual contagion, right? The Molotov cocktail of intellectual viruses. We are ripe for this. I step back and I look at our system today, and so many of the things that were assumptions coming out of the post-World War II era have, have broken down. I mean, the financial assumptions of the baby boomer world just don't work anymore. They, they don't transfer. I think about my own life and, you know, the idea that I was going to enter into a planning firm, uh, engineering firm. I was going to work as a apprentice engineer and then as a licensed engineer, and then I would eventually get made an owner of the company and I would work my way up in ownership, buying out and paying out the older owners. And then at the end of decades, I would get to be in a position where I could be on a board of directors and then I could be, you know, one of the people running this company and maybe even be president of it for a little bit of time. And then there would be this succession of people coming after me that would be buying me out and purchasing me out. It took me until about the age 24 <laughs> to realize that that mathematically didn't work. There would never be enough young people coming in to buy out the old people. It didn't work. It did work back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It absolutely worked. It started to work less in the 80s. Uh, by the time you got to me getting out of school in 1995, this was a model that was clearly broken. And today, the only firms that I see that are able to continue to do this are the ones that are acquiring new businesses all the time. They're basically bringing in you know, new people and consolidating. But the idea of the succession of a thing like this is gone. That, that idea is gone. You look at housing. The idea that you could, on a middle-class salary, um, middle-class income, you could buy a house, you could live in that house, you could maybe upgrade once, you could pay off your mortgage, and then you could sell it for a decent amount of equity and retire nicely into a, a smaller place. That is contingent on a next generation being there to buy that. And you know, not only are there questions about whether the current generation wants to buy the baby boomer homes at the prices that are there now, but I think the bigger question is, do they even have the capacity to do it if they wanted to? These things are breaking, they're breaking down. We have, in order to keep this all going, of course, propped up the current system. You see now during the pandemic response, the local hardware store was closed. The, the local restaurants are closed. They're, they have all these restrictions on them about what they can do. I just went to my favorite writing place, which is a pizza place here in town. I was the only one there in this uh, the locally owned pizza place. In order to get there, I had to go buy a Burger King drive-through, and there were twenty cars lined up. You know, they've never been closed a single day. Uh, they've been open the entire time. Uh, most of the you know conglomerate, most of the multinationals, most of the corporations have been open. The Ma and Pa, the local businesses, have not. We have lavished huge rewards and backstops on the wealthy and and the well connected. And we protected those with assets and with wealth. This has not only been a pandemic that has been brutal to the poor, uh, but it's been brutal in its unfairness. I think it's one thing if people were suffering and we were all suffering together, but it's clear that the experience here has been some will suffer greatly while others will actually see their lot improved. 
The difference between the two has nothing to do with how hard you're willing to work. It has nothing to do with the quality of your ideas. It has nothing to do with merit or a meritocracy. It, it literally has just to do with, you know, are you close to power? Are you in a selected industry? Uh, have you made yourself essential to an economy? I think this is a world, again, ripe, ripe for dysfunction and exploitation. Another thing that makes us ripe, and this is a little bit perverse because it should be a good thing, but the fact that we have no common enemy actually makes it easier for us to turn on each other. I think of my grandparents' generation. You know, my, my grandfather was a Marine in World War II. When he returned from that experience, he shared a common set of understandings. Some of them messed up, some of them quite legitimate, but he shared a common set of understandings with uh, the people around him. They had bound together to do something difficult and important. I, I think about just my own time in the army. And you know, you, you put me in a group with 300 people and my platoon was probably 80 people. I knew all of them. And if I ran into one of them today, I'm, I'm sure I would you know, be happy to see them and, and, and have a sense of camaraderie with them. We certainly went through difficult experiences together. But if you put me in a place with them, I'd, I'd probably, uh, you know, not like a fourth of them. I'd probably disagree with many of them. I'd probably find it difficult to work with many. But, but we'd have that common bond, right? We'd have that thing that brought us together. I, I think about one of the, I hate to use the word happy because happy is the wrong phrase. Content is the wrong phrase too. I'm, I'm going to let the word hang there. I don't know what the right word is, but let me explain the feeling. Uh, that I had on September 12th, 2001. September 11th, 2001 was a terrifying day. It was a day full of shock. We've become used to some of these things then, but now, but, but back then, the idea that someone would fly a plane into a building and, and could then take it down, and we didn't know if there were 30,000 people dead or what, these were beyond shocking developments. These were things that just numbed people. My wife is a news reporter, and of course she, you know, went in right away that morning and, and worked late. And I remember when she got home that night, she just walked in the house and we gave each other a big hug and just stood there and cried. It, it was an overwhelming day. It was a day that you look at the world one way and then that whole view is, is shattered. And it's like a loss of innocence that you can never get back. But I'll tell you, the next day was beautiful. The next day was, was beautiful. And it was beautiful because you looked across the courtyard at your neighbor standing outside their house and you nodded to him and waved. You, you stopped at the gas station to fill your car up and, and everybody there was polite. And you looked at the clerk behind the counter and you, you felt close to that person. You know, we're in this together. I went about my daily routine and I remember talking to people and, and they would all say, you know, bless you and, and uh, take care. And, you know, it was, it was this feeling of being close to each other because we were sharing a, a common trauma, a common difficulty. I even remember, and it's hard to believe now, but uh, some of our prominent politicians today, and I remember Nancy Pelosi specifically, but I'm sure Mitch McConnell was there and I'm sure some of the, you know, Joe Biden was there, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, standing on the Capitol steps, singing God Bless America and other songs, arms around each other, holding hands, you know, we're in this together. There was this feeling because we were, you know, united against a common enemy that the difficulties we had with each other were lesser than the things that, uh, you know, we needed to come together on. It was a beautiful feeling. 
And instead of happy or content or whatever, I, th- I think beautiful is probably the right, the right word. We, we don't have that today. We have, we have the opposite of that. We have the opposite of that. And so I look at where we're at today, this dysfunction of this current moment, the fact that we are, in a sense, ripe for exploitation, you know, from outside powers, from inside powers. We are listless. It brings me back to Gavin Newsom. This is someone else's problem to solve. Get rid of Trump. We need to uh, have a climate policy. Um, if we don't, you know, California will continue to burn. Uh, Minneapolis City Council, you know, we need the state legislature to act. We need the federal government to take some action. Because if we don't, we're going to continue to have police shootings and we're going to continue to have protests and we're going to continue to have riots and neighborhoods burned down. I want to say this about November 3rd. I'm going to vote in this election. And I'm going to do that as an expression of my commitment to this joint project that we call America. I'm going to cast my ballot because you and I are in this together. And it's my responsibility. But I feel like casting a ballot for president every four years is the least important part of my political participation. I feel like voting for president is the least significant thing that I am going to do in support of this joint project. And that's not because it's not important who the president is. I think it's very important, and I don't begrudge anyone who is obsessed over it or worried about it or or, or thinks it's very important. But to me, it's the least significant thing that I am going to do. And the reason is because we have a lot of stuff to do. We have a ridiculous amount of stuff to do. And so this brings me to the second thing that I wanted to discuss, and I just wrote a little note for myself here, what are we waiting for? What is it magical about November 3rd or November 4th that makes us wait for that day to do something? What, what is it that is magical about an international climate change agreement that keeps the governor of California from taking action that he can take right now today to make things a little bit better? Maybe not make it perfect, but to make it better. What, what is the thing that is keeping the Minneapolis City Council, who seem to be in agreement that this is a problem that they need to take some action on, what is keeping them from doing that? My friends, what is keeping you and me from doing the things that we can do right now to make things a little bit better in the places that we live? This pandemic has revealed some things to us very clearly. I, I think, you know, first, w- we are ridiculously fragile. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that we're fragile. You know many of the ways that we're fragile. But but a lot of it, you know, has been a little bit opaque and it's now like out there almost in an inarguable way. The foundations of our economy are ridiculously fragile. I don't know how you could a year ago look at, you know, 12 years of almost 0% interest rates, fed, you know, manipulated interest rates, how you could look at ongoing quantitative easing and all just the things we were doing to prop up our economy and somehow say, we have a great economy, like the foundation of our economy is healthy and strong. But there were very smart people who were saying that. I don't know how you could, you know, with any credibility say anything like that today. The foundations of our economy are ridiculously fragile. And they're ridiculously fragile because our families are ridiculously fragile. I don't care how much money 
corporations have. I don't care how much cash reserve Warren Buffett has or Berkshire Hathaway has. When we look at the foundations of our economy, things like entrepreneurial startups, small business health, family wealth, family capacity, these things are at all-time lows. We have a, a ridiculously fragile economy. We've seen the pandemic wipe out just huge swaths of small businesses, just gone, gone. The kind of duopolies, the oligopolies of our economy are thriving in this. They're being supported. They're being propped up. They're getting all kinds of, of benefits that those small businesses are just not getting and not experiencing. Our local governments, they're stressed deeply right now. And we're starting to see that stress come to the fore. But every projection has them just getting pounded, just getting destroyed. And in fact, when you talk to local governments, even in the reddest of red states, the thing they're saying is we need a bailout. We, we basically need help. If we're going to do this, we need money from somewhere else. I just read an article today about uh, the Canadian housing bubble and how it's greater than anything uh, that was ever experienced in the United States, except where the United States is at right now. We're all comfortable with calling 2000 to 2008 a housing bubble. Uh, but the fact that we've reinflated it to even greater highs today is is just a recovery. It's a it's a it's a different marketing slogan for the same economic effect. I've watched stay-at-home orders morph into you know social distancing, morph into ongoing social isolation. And while I talk a lot about us being economically fragile, us being fragile in in ways that uh, are going to come to the fore from a financial perspective. I don't think there's any question that we are socially fragile now. You know, not only do we only talk to each other through social media, this wildly dysfunctional platform, this wildly distorting way of, of having human communication, but we have so many people who are living in isolation today. You know, maybe with a spouse if they're lucky, maybe with a handful of people they can commune with and, and chat with. Um, but humans are social species. I mean, we, we need each other. We're not wired to live in isolation. We're not wired to live without each other. And the fact that, you know, I, I go into a store or I go into a, a place where there are people and they have masks on and I'm, I'm wearing my mask. I'm a supporter of wearing masks. I've, I've said from the very start, you know, one of the last podcasts I did was how we need to I'll be wearing masks. And this was before, this is back when the CDC was saying, don't bother. You go in and, and, and without people smile, without their faces, without that interaction, there, there's something missing. There's something like taken from us. And so we're socially fragile. I think amid all this fragility, the pandemic has also shown us that no one is coming to save us. And if they do come to save us, <laughs> it's not gonna be the kind of help we need, right? No one's coming along to pull us out of this. No one's coming along to fix the things that are broken. And if they do, they're going to come with the tools and the equipment and the gear that is really not going to be what we need. So no one's coming to save us. The third thing that this pandemic has shown us is that there's so much we can do on our own. There's so much that we can actually accomplish by ourselves in our own places if we have a mind to it. And so I get back to this question, this, these, these five words that I wrote down. What, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? What is supposed to happen to get us to go out and do something? I end this podcast every time with the phrase, 
keep doing what you can to build a strong town. I don't stand here and say, go vote for this candidate or go do A, B, and C. I don't suggest that everybody listening to this should go run for mayor of your city or go sign up to be on your plan commission. What I say and what we say as an organization, and I've been very intentional about this, do what you can to help build a strong town. There's a couple operative parts of that. The first is do. Like you don't have an obligation to fix all the problems. You don't have an obligation to solve everything. You don't have an obligation to make things all right for everybody in all instances, but you need to do. I think you do have an obligation. I believe I have an obligation to do what I can to make things at least a little bit better. Do. The second part of that is what you can. No one is expecting the governor of California to solve international climate change. They're really not. It would just be really nice if, if Caltrans stopped building highways. And if the cities allowed people to build homes so they didn't have to build in the countryside, that would be great. That would be a huge effect. And, and you know what? If you were really worried about global climate change, you could do those things and be an example for other people and figure out how to do it and make it work and you know, make, it, make it work really well and build momentum so that there were fewer obstacles in the way of an international agreement on climate change. The same thing applies to our communities, right? You don't have to fix that horrible strode through the middle of town. But maybe if you were helpful in getting a walking and biking culture in your community, maybe you could build momentum towards getting that done. And maybe if you don't have the capacity to build a, a biking and walking culture in your community, maybe you can just walk yourself and be an example to other people. That, that's a just fine thing to do. Just do it. Go out and do it. What are we waiting for? At Strong Towns, when the pandemic began and uh, we did the period of stay at homes and all that, we started to get inundated with requests. What can we do? Um, what should we be doing right now? What, what's our next step? And I actually assembled that. I, I put together, I wrote a three-part series and then with the team here, we, we, we put that and assembled that all into a toolkit. If you go to Google and type just Strong Towns toolkit, your pandemic toolkit, you will get what we put together on that if you haven't already seen it. The idea is um, here's some short-term things, some mid-term things, some long-term things for us to be working on to do to make things a little bit better. We recognized that people needed more action. They needed you know, more th specific things that they could go out and do right now. And so we started uh, the Strong Towns Academy. We created a, a free 101 course. And uh, almost 2,000 people have taken that course now in the last, what it would be, five months. That's astounding to me. I mean, that's just amazing. Go take that course. Uh, learn a little bit. It's, it's absolutely free. Tell other people about it. Start sharing and understanding with people around you. I wrote an article um, last month on Kansas City and the idea of making reparations. And it's a lot of the same lines as, as my whole lament over Kevin Newsom and the Minneapolis City Council. In, in Kansas City, they're all about equity. They're all about justice. They want to make things right. They had lots of neighborhoods that were redlined. Those neighborhoods are struggling and, and falling behind today. How do we address this? And a lot of the impetus is we need to have a statewide commission on, uh, on reparations. We need to have a national program on reparations. No, you know what? Here's a whole list of things that you can do in your community to start doing this right now. Maybe it's not the complete fix and maybe it won't solve every problem, but there's no reason to wait 
to start working on it. What are we waiting for? I think at the end of the day that we do an injustice to our communities. We do an injustice to our inheritance, you know, our cultural inheritance. We, we do uh, an injustice to our future. And, and we do an injustice to ourselves and our own lives when we sit around and wait for something else to happen before we start doing what we can. I love all you. I've had this great opportunity over the last couple of weeks to be doing some focus groups with some of our members and actually chatting with people one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I, I miss being out on the road because it, it always gave me that feedback to meet with real people and have conversations. And, and really, I'm gonna say this, be inspired by all the things that people are doing. If you are one of them out there working and doing stuff, I, I just wanna say thank you because you are an inspiration and you're inspiring me and you're inspiring many other people. Please keep doing it, keep going, keep pushing. If you are someone who is maybe just tuning in, maybe a passive listener, and you're like, I don't know what I could do. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at this stuff. I, I don't know what my contribution is. I'm sympathetic. I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not castigating you. I don't you know, hold you in, in any type of, of disregard. But what I want to do is I want to help you get started. I want to help you find that next thing. I want to help you get going because we need all hands on deck, not just November 4th. Uh, we're going to need them all 2021 and beyond. We're gonna need them today, yesterday, and everything coming up. We got this. We are doing important work in this movement. A big part of our shift right now is in working on ways of supporting people in taking action. And so look for more from us in the coming months to try to help you. And if you have a place where you're struggling, if you have a place where you're having a difficult time, get a hold of us. Go to strongtowns.org, drop us a line. You can email me at chuck at strongtowns.org. You can email the team at team at strongtowns.org. Just get a hold of us. Let us know where you're struggling. Let us know where we can help. We may have a resource. We may have a, a resource we're putting together. We may have a place we can send you. But at the end of the day, my friends, we can't wait. We can't be paralyzed by the dysfunction. We can't be paralyzed by this moment that we're in. We can't let it distract us. We can't let ourselves be held captive or paralyzed to a narrative that says we must you know, see A, B, and C happen before we can take any action. We have to be the change we want to see. We got to get out there and do it. And so I'm going to sign off. I will tell everybody, I know it's been a long time since we put out a podcast. If you're interested in a little bit of behind the scenes of why it's been so long and also what we've got coming up, I'm going to do that after the out music. If you're not interested in that, that's cool too. You can just be done, <laughs> be done with this podcast now. Uh, but either way, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. You can expect a regular broadcast from us uh, weekly kind of here on out now for uh, the indefinite future. And so I will talk to you again very soon. In the meantime, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. 
just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. Hey, everybody. A little bit of, of inside stuff here. I feel like I owe you an explanation because I've been radio silent here for quite a while. I think the last like real podcast I did was in May. Obviously, dealing with the pandemic here and things uh, shifting very, very quickly. I think everyone was doing that. And we were no different trying to figure it all out. Uh, we were actually on a staff retreat when things started to go crazy. And so we rushed home and, and locked down and did all that. You know, and like I said, we were kind of getting inundated with requests for help. We were kind of getting back up and, and I had recorded a little bit and, and we were going to go back live with podcasts and the whole George Floyd thing happened. It was a very, obviously a very difficult thing for a lot of people. I'm not going to, you know, single myself out here as somehow disproportionately impacted by this. I will say being from Minnesota, this is the kind of thing that happens in other places. It doesn't happen here. And so there's a little bit of working through that. And, uh, you know, I also just quite frankly to everyone, I will, you know, be a little bit vulnerable here. I feel like at that period of time, I had a lot more listening to do than speaking. And I was just a little apprehensive about trying to fill up that space with my own voice. I feel like we have a lot to say on these topics, but I feel like uh, what we have to say is maybe not appropriate for that exact moment. And so it was, it was kind of easy for me to opt out or not easy, but it was, it was the choice we made was to, to not record there for a couple of weeks. Then I got kicked out of my office. For those of you that liked the, the railroad track and the trains going by when I was recording my podcast, that, that is no more kind of a, a casualty of the pandemic. Someone had bought the, uh, the railroad yard that I was in and then had put a lot of money into fixing it up and had brought on a bunch of tenants was really going very deeply into the wedding business. And so they had fixed up one of the, the buildings as a really funky warehouse, like wedding hall, conference center kind of thing. And it, it was nice. I mean, it was, it was very, very nice. Uh, they were supposedly booked out like nine months in advance. They were doing really well. The building that I was in where my office was, the other offices were now full. People like caterers, wedding planners, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. When I got back after lockdown and started to set my office back up again, I was the only one in the building. Like everyone was gone. I was told that, you know, all those events had been canceled. It was kind of just a bad thing. And I was informed then after I paid one month's rent that, hey, you know, we're closing this building and you're out of here. You got 30 days to get out. And so all of a sudden this building I've been in for a dozen years and, you know, when you get stuck in a place, you got all your stuff. I had to find a new place to go. I was fortunate enough to move to uh, middle school. Um, this is actually the building I'm in now is the Franklin Arts Center. It was a Franklin Junior High when I was a kid. I actually met my wife in this building. Up the hall here, I show my kids uh, where I met her. 
it's closer to my house. It's a huge space. It's got a really nice studio set up. But it, it required me to move everything, which was you know a lot of work and a lot of unpacking. And, and that was basically three weeks where I didn't have my gear and I didn't have things set up and I, I couldn't really record the way I wanted to. I was just going to get back to doing it again uh, when I had a crash and I broke my foot. I was doing something kind of stupid. I uh, was in a boat on land, kind of putting things away, and I was getting out of the boat, and I jumped down. And when I jumped down, my kids were kind of close to the boat, and I jumped a little close to kind of avoid them. And my left foot caught on the side of the boat, and I came down hard on my right foot. I shattered it. I, I had eight breaks in my right foot. I also smashed my head, ultimately, on the side of the truck. I suffered a concussion I'll give you a little bit of context for that. I had a really bad car crash in 2004 and had a, a, a bad concussion. And since then, I've had a couple, you know, modest little things that were kind of like head bumps uh, where I had concussion symptoms, but they, you know, recovered pretty quick. Th this one was a really a lot more serious. And in fact, I didn't recognize the symptoms for a couple of weeks because I was dealing with the pain in the foot and some pain medication and you know, it's hard to, t <laughs> I was not, not in a good place anyway. Then when, you know, I started to become a little more functional uh, around the house, trying to help out and do things. Uh, my wife was just like, something's wrong with you. Uh, at one point, uh, she was holding up things around the house, asking me if I knew the name of them. And a shocking number I did not or could not immediately recall. And so uh, I wound up at the hospital. I wound up getting MRIs and all that. I wound up, you know, they said there's there's stuff there that we need to deal with. Um, and so I've, I've been dealing with that for, uh, you know, I guess I'm July, August, September. You know, I'm three months plus into, uh, into that. I will say things feel a lot better. If you've ever had a concussion, you know that it's a little bit like a fog. I imagine that this is what you know, suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's becomes like you go into a fog and you're really, your brain is there, it's working. Uh, you can still do things, but there's stuff that's like not there. It, 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 you, you can't grasp it. When you go back into the memory banks, you just get that like spinning circle, like on windows when it's loading, you just get that loading effect and you're really not sure why. It was helpful for me once I got a diagnosis and, and someone pointed out, my wife, that like, you're not right. And then the doctor said, oh yeah, you are not right. It helps because it, it frees you from feeling like you have to be normal. Uh, you can actually struggle with words and people can help you. And, and the thing about a brain injury is the brain is a very malleable organ once you reconnect things. Like once I remember the word for spatula, I don't forget the word for spatula again, but it's remembering it and, and reconnecting it that is difficult. And so I, I feel like 95% out of the fog now, but there was a couple months there where you, like I was recording podcasts. I mean, I I probably have eight podcasts I recorded. You would not want to have listened to any of them. Uh, they were pretty bad. And I, I deleted them. They went away. They will never be released. Uh, and that's a good thing because my mind was not working quite right. I also am working on a book. And so uh, it was due October 1st. I've asked for an extension. I haven't actually heard back, but I can't deliver a book that's not done. I believe that it's going to be done by January 1st. That's kind of the the, the track that I'm on. Either way, it's going to come out next year. It's called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. And that has, uh, you know, it impaired my capacity here to, to be at full schedule. And then just so you know, in the other room sitting here are my kids. Uh, my kids are 13 and 16. So they're at ages where they're pretty self-sufficient. 
But uh, with hybrid learning, they're home half the time. They find it uh, much easier to do their schoolwork if they come into the office with me. So the joy of my life is that my office is filled with, with my daughters, which is fantastic. And I love it. Uh, the bane of getting my work done is that my office is filled with my daughters and they like to, to ask me questions and talk and, and have me help them with their schooling and, and do things that I'm sure I'll be grateful for someday, but right now impairs my capacity to do this work sometimes. So my uh, apologies for uh, being absent for so long. I do have a series of guests scheduled over the next few weeks, some spectacular guests, some people I'm really, really excited to chat with. Uh, so you can expect a weekly podcast from here through our break in December, and then I don't see any reason why we won't be continuing uh, from that point forward with the, the regular schedule. So thanks for being patient, everybody. And, you know, Really enjoy hearing from you when, when you get a hold of me. And I, I, I've appreciated all the people who have emailed and said we really missed the podcast. If you are playing along uh, at home and an avid podcast listener, you probably have heard of the Upzone podcast. It's a weekly conversation podcast about current events. I am part of that. And so uh, if you're not getting that and you would like to get that, it's a fantastic Strong Towns podcast hosted by Abby Kinney. Go type up zone in your podcast search engine and, and you will get it. The other one that we are launching now, or rebooting actually, uh, we had a podcast for a long time called It's the Little Things that was focusing on people who are making change in their community, people who are doing great work. We are rebooting that one and giving it a new name. It's called The Bottom Up Revolution. Uh, Rachel Quidno will be hosting that one. And she's already recorded like two or three episodes and they are fantastic. And so if you're interested in case studies in learning about people who are doing good work in getting deep into how people are making change to build a strong town, uh, you're going to want to type in uh, bottom up revolution or go to strongtowns.org and click on podcasts and you will get the link for that as well. Take care, everybody. And uh, we'll be back real soon.